chemistry is really complex. You're trying to optimize so many parameters of a drug at one time. It's like I always think about, you know, these gymnasts that are trying to coordinate to land on that thin balance beam. Everything has to be synchronized so elegantly. That's sort of the game here. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain, and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. This episode's about chemistry. Can you give me an example of chemistry in your everyday life? Cooking is the first thing that I think about, yeah. And then... Uh... As a scientist, I think of physiology as chemistry. So everything like interacting with our environment is chemistry. We take in oxygen, give out carbon dioxide, and then everything in between. <laughs> I do take ibuprofen. I also would appreciate chemistry of making me look as young as I possibly can. Yeah, I mean, in the morning for coffee, for, for washing the dishes, chemistry involved in all of it. So I often think of chemistry as alchemy, actually. The ancient quest of turning lead or other common starting materials into gold or the philosopher's stone. The reality is that chemistry is all around us, from the changes foods undergo when we cook them, to the physical state of the chairs we sit in, to the pills that we take as medicine. In fact, chemistry bridges other natural sciences, including physics, geology and biology, all together. And thus is often thought as a real central science and integral to all of our scientific disciplines. Many people, though, think of chemists as being white-coated scientists mixing strange liquids in a laboratory. But the truth is we are all chemists. In fact, with me today is a leading scientist and chemist, uh, Wendy Young. Welcome, Wendy. Thank you. It's great to be here. So do you agree that we're all chemists? Uh, you know, actually, yes. When we're cooking in the kitchen, you are a chemist. When you're here in the bar, the bartender mixing drinks is a chemist, so yes, absolutely. Simple but big question, what is chemistry? So chemistry is the science of really elements, and most of us organic chemists think of it as we utilize carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, and oxygen, because those are the elements that are most abundant in your body, not necessarily the earth, but in the body. And these elements form compounds, and that's what chemists study, how you combine elements to make compounds. But there are so many different types of chemists, and it is really hard when you get into chemistry to choose what you want to be when you grow up. I enjoyed organic chemistry, but there's analytical chemistry where you study quantitatively, more quantitatively, um, how things are measured, broken down, analyzed. There's formulation chemists, there's physical chemists. Um, gosh, so many different types of chemists. And chemistry is applied to so many things. Makeup, for goodness sakes, paint, um, food. There's just so many things. That's why I think chemistry is a great uh, major. Because it's beyond just biology. You know, yeah. we're really focused on biology here and, and you know, the, the drug hunting aspect of this. But you're right. It, again, it's all around us. Jane. Hi, Wellington. Did you study chemistry? And how did that compare to uh, your life as a biology student? Absolutely studied chemistry. Chemistry to me was a lot like mathematics and very formulaic, making sure the equation added up. 
Whereas biology, to me, is much more like a black box. You put something in, you get something out, and you try and work out what's going on in the middle. And it could be topsy-turvy, left, right, up or down. So this is happening in our bodies all the time, just naturally, right? So just chemical reactions and processes are happening. Cells, that's how cells are surviving, growing, dividing, and then communicating with other cells as well. I love that because it's true. Biology is actually chemistry. It's really interesting to think. It's not only is the, the chemistry about catalyzing other reactions, it's also the state. If you just think about water, we think, you know, H2O, two, two hydrogens, one oxygen. Um, and it's always H2O, but it can be H2O in a cold state, so it's frozen water, or it's liquid, or you heat it up and it's gas. You actually insert an oxygen in the middle, it's actually now H2O2, which is hydrogen peroxide, and trust me, you would not want to drink that. Simple modification can have a dramatic effect on a compound. This might seem like a simple question. How do you insert oxygen in a molecule? Well, remember, chemistry is just like a mathematical equation, and there are basic rules about how elements can interact with each other. This is really taking two molecules of hydrogen and two molecules of oxygen, and under certain circumstances, they will form a complex together. And actually, this complex is called hydrogen peroxide, and it's very thermodynamically unstable. So the higher the temperature and the more intense the concentration and more basic the pH is, this um, H2O2, hydrogen peroxide, will fall apart and become water and oxygen. That's why, actually, in the labs, um, or even in your hairdressers, you need to store hydrogen peroxide at very cool temperatures and dilute concentrations and very acidic pHs, so it stays as H2O2. Cool. Thinking about biology, most of us come in contact with chemistry via pills. Why a pill? Yeah, so pills are portable, mobile. You could put them in your purse, your backpack, and that's why people, I think, prefer pills. But there are other ways to, to, to make drugs. Antibodies are so effective at neutralizing proteins, but those are large molecules, and the reason they're not appropriate to make antibodies for all drugs is because since they're large molecules, they generally interact at the cell surface of proteins or interact with soluble proteins, but they're so big they can't get inside the cell. In contrast, small molecules are just that, they're small. So since they're small, they can permeate the cell membrane uh, and get inside. And so the, the beauty is that now, with a pill, with a small molecule, you can get at targets in a cell that you couldn't get access to with antibodies. So it's kind of two things, right? One, it's the target that the drugs are going after, and then it's the delivery. Right? Large molecules will just not be orally bioavailable. They will not get through the intestinal cell membrane. So you just can't make them, you generally can't make them oral. So Wendy, what does go into a pill? It depends on the pill, but usually the half of the weight is generally the active pharmaceutical ingredient, and the other half are what's called excipients. Potentially an excipient could mask the taste of the chemical. Some chemicals don't taste so good. Sometimes the excipients are put there to stabilize the pill so it has longer shelf life. Sometimes the excipients are put there to make the molecule dissolve better. It's a whole science in itself, and that's why years and years of research going into perfecting that pill. You want the most of the drug component to, to stay stable, to get absorbed, and so lots of other things go into a pill to help it out. All these excipients are being kind of peeled off, a lot like 
perhaps a rocket ship? Yeah, yeah. So when your drug falls apart, when it's metabolized and a piece of the rocket ship falls off, you hope it comes out really quickly. You hope it doesn't cause any harm because you could imagine when, when the rocket ship falls apart, like what if a piece, you know, lands on Manhattan, right? You gotta make sure that <laughs> you gotta make sure that piece isn't gonna do any damage anywhere in your body. It's called a metabolite. You take a pill, right? Um, it's gotta get through the gut, the gut's very acidic, and then it's gotta get into the bloodstream, and then it's gotta stay in the body and not just get cleared out. How do you, as chemists, think about all these complicated um, uh, delivery mechanisms that are required to get, a, get the really, chemical to the protein in the body where it needs to go? It is really complex. It's this, you're trying to optimize so many parameters of a drug at one time. It's like I always think about, you know, these gymnasts that are trying to coordinate to land on that thin balance beam. Everything has to be synchronized so elegantly. That's sort of the game here. And chemists do learn how to do that. So when you swallow a pill, generally, by the way, you should swallow it with a full glass of water. It goes down your throat, your esophagus. It lands in your stomach, which has a very low pH. It's very acidic. And that's where the drug starts to dissolve. But then again, the chemist has to make sure that it's stable in that low pH. Because if it starts to fall apart, it's not gonna work. So chemists design stability into the pill so it survives the low pH of the stomach. And compounds that are acidic and only slightly basic will be absorbed in the stomach. The rest of the molecules that are more basic will then move and get absorbed in the small intestines because the small intestine has a slightly higher pH. And the drug then is absorbed. Any that's not comes out the back end. So part of the chemist's job is to make sure that the majority of the medicine is absorbed or it's, it's, it's waste. So once the medicine is absorbed in the intestines or the stomach, it goes through what's called the portal vein and right to your liver. And the liver is the chemist's enemy. The liver will chew up your molecule and that's why you have a liver, to keep you safe from things that might not be healthy for your to, body. It wants to break it all down and clear it out. It does. So you have these enzymes uh, in your liver that chew up the molecule, it's called metabolism. So the chemists sometimes have to trick the liver and block different metabolic sites in order to have the drug stay in your bloodstream for a long time. So you can do that. On the, on the actual molecule, you can start building in um, side chains or yeah. other elements that not only are you building in specificity for the protein or enzyme you want to target, you're building in other things around that. Yep, we have other scientists, um, drug metabolism experts that will determine where the molecule is broken apart, share that information with the chemist, and then basically we try to glue the molecule. How do we keep the molecule from falling apart? So sometimes if metabolism is a certain aryl ring, uh, it's hydroxylated and oxygen, the liver adds an oxygen, we will, right in that spot, add a fluorine. That's a common med chem trick. Put a fluorine there. Just stop it from happening. Just stop it from happening. Okay, it's now gone into the liver, hopefully protected from being metabolized, what's next? So after the liver, it then enters the, the bloodstream and it circulates, the drug circulates all through your body. And in a human, imagine you're that one little molecule, every four to six heartbeats, it makes it through your entire body. And so medicines usually takes about 
on the average two hours after you swallow a pill with that full glass of water for it to get completely into your blood system. Then over time, it keeps going through your liver and your liver, bit by bit, says, see you later. It breaks it apart, um, comes out, you know where it comes out, and that's called the half-life of your molecule. So eventually so it's cleared. It's cleared. Yeah. People always wonder, does the pill go only where it's needed? You know, you got the stomachache, does it only go to your stomach? Or No, actually, it will also go to your shoulder, it will go to your elbow, it'll go to your pinky. The drug will go everywhere, but it will work at the site where it's needed. But part of the challenge is also, since it will go everywhere, uh, it has to be safe. So there's a kind of threshold that's required then. You want enough drug to go where it needs to go, but you don't want these so-called off-target effects. You want to minimize that. Plus, not only that, you want to make sure that the target you have is very, very specific and is not hitting other molecules or other proteins accidentally. Can you talk a bit about safety, how you build safety into molecules? Yeah, so it's one of the biggest challenges making the molecules really safe because you want it to be well tolerated. And that's exactly it. You build a molecule to interact with one specific protein, but it often at the very beginning hits so many and has biological effects that you didn't even predict. It's paramount that the chemists make it highly selective. And how we do that depends on what the target is. Um, in enzymes, we often know the other biological proteins that are highly related, highly analogous. And so we will, once we make a, a drug candidate, we'll test it against those other enzymes that are highly analogous, because that's your best bet to seeing if you have selectivity. And sometimes it works out well, you have good selectivity, and other times it hits them all and you're back to the drawing board. Wow, that's an incredible journey. How similar is this drug hunting in chemistry versus what you do in biology? It depends on what your comparison is, right? The hunt through chemical matter, through thousands and thousands of molecules to come up with a drug, is similar in many ways to the hunt through biology to come up with pathways and understanding disease. There's a complexity there. In terms of drugging a biological pathway with a large molecule versus a chemical molecule, there's a difference. We tend to go through hundreds of large molecules to come up with one that we want to use an antibody or a, or a protein versus thousands and hundreds of thousands that a chemist will screen through to get to a target as well. I'm always amazed by what you do and others in the field about the sheer scale of trying to find chemical matter or the right chemical matter as a drug hunter. How do you, how do you even start to start on the journey of this process of coming up with a drug that's going to bind a protein to stop or inhibit its function. You hit it on the head. It is a challenge. And it's when we start a new project, we, we say, where are we going to get the chemical matter? And we screen libraries. It's not like you go into a library of books or you, there's just an alphabet list long. It's thousands and thousands and thousands of molecules. Millions and millions, millions. And you're right, they're not in a bookcase, they're in trays, um, and they're, they're, they're organized and computerized where they're at, and millions of compounds will be screened against the selected protein that we're trying to interact with. We've talked in a prior session about proteins and protein structures and how they're three-dimensional, and they kind of, if you zoom in on them, they have valleys and pits and mountains, and that, um, 
coming up with drugs to these things has to be exquisitely selective because you need to get a compound into the right valley or on top of the right mountain. Mm -hmm. This is what you mean by screening. Yes, exactly. So we screen our large library of millions of compounds against this protein and you don't always know where the molecules are going to interact. So often they interact at the active site. So for enzymes, generally at the active site because you can then block the machinery of an enzyme by putting your compound in there. So the whole function just then stops. Exactly. Hopefully. And so making active, that's called active site inhibitors, is very productive. But you then could have selectivity issues because then they could interact with other enzymes. So it's kind of a cool thing if you could get it to work out and it's not always easy. As you said, I like the way it, that you, you don't get it to go in the valley of the active site. You get it to go on the outside, which is called an allosteric inhibitor. And, and the feeling is that generally if it's an allosteric inhibitor, it will have better selectivity. But they're challenging to find. So we look for different things, specific inhibitors, active inhibitors, enzyme inhibitors, and then these allosteric inhibitors, which is pretty much like blocking the protein and elbowing everything else off, right? Right. And there's, and there's other things besides enzymes that we interact with. Protein-protein interactions. Imagine two big proteins coming together. So sometimes we try to make a compound that fits right between the two, um, and that's challenging because they, those sorts of molecules end up to be very large sometimes, and it's hard to get those into a pill if they're too big. Right. It's a lot of trial and error. Often 10,000 molecules will be made before an ultimate medicine is selected to go into the pill. How did you get into this field of research? I was always interested in science. I was definitely a mathlete growing up. I, was, uh, I loved science, and science is also on the same side of the brain as music, and I was very into music, and I always thought that maybe I would be a musician. When I went off to college, I took a lot of music, but I also, thinking that maybe I'd be pre-med if the music thing didn't work out, I took organic chemistry and I fell in love with it. It's interesting because I always loved science and I did music. I grew up playing the violin. A lot of scientists that I know or we know, I think, are both um, musicians and scientists at the same time. What did you play growing yeah. up? I played the flute. Uh, I could play a lot of different instruments too, but that was my area of focus. And I loved playing in orchestras when I was growing up. I played in off-Broadway shows in New York. and. Music is a language, and I think science is a language too. You see the notes on a page, and I could just put them together so quickly, and, and my fingers move along with the notes, and, and out comes beautiful music. That's sort of what chemistry is too. The chemists can visualize, sort of like notes, that this carbon, this oxygen, it's a note. You connect it to these notes, it makes you know this pattern and it's, it's pattern recognition. I think that ability to see patterns is very powerful because there's infinite possibilities to the outcome. So you could play music very many different ways or make drugs very many different ways or think about biology very many different ways. And some of those outcomes sound good, look good, but some of them are terrible. Yeah, there, there are infinite possibilities and that's what's so exciting about it. What can you create? It also means they're endless and there's always a job for us to do as scientists. Yeah, and there are always critics too. Some people will <laughs> like your music and some people will not. They're the ones that you have a hard time convincing to get your papers published. <laughs> it still amazes me to this day that you can design a molecule on a piece of paper and you can synthesize it. It doesn't get any cooler than that. And then you can tweak it and actually make incredible life-changing drugs. Absolutely.
So what advice would you give to young budding scientists out there who are really interested in this space? Yeah. So when I was in school, I mainly focused on chemistry, math, and I went really deep in those subjects. And I missed out on a lot of biology education. And I, what, I, what I recommend to students today is that most discoveries happen at the interface of biology and chemistry. So don't ignore the biology. Learn it as you go, and you will be a much better, stronger drug hunter. That's great advice, yeah. You need both sides of these equations to come together. Yeah. The field's changed, technology's changed. The screening of these vast libraries is changing. I'm always amazed when I walk past those labs and see the robots. There's robots that are dispensing all the chemicals, the millions of chemicals out there. So in terms of frontiers and new frontiers and advances in chemistry, where do you think we're going to be in five to ten years? Yeah, um, things are evolving really quickly. One of the things that uh, always strikes me is just the purification of molecules. When I was back in the lab decades ago, the way we purified our compounds is completely different than the way we purify compounds now. The, the automation the way we screen reactions now. Um, when I was you know, training, you would generally do a reaction one at a time. Maybe you'd set up four in a hood, all different conditions, but now there's the ability with these robots to screen catalysts, and you could screen hundreds of different conditions and reagents at a time. So you could imagine the advantage it does in speeding up the cycle time. Yeah, so it's not just one scientist at a lab bench anymore. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Things are moving fast. Right now, chemists learn rules and guidelines of how to make oral molecules, and we make them inside this one box. And you're, you design properties that fit in this box, and if you ever go outside that box, people say, hey, that's not going to work, or they might criticize your design. So what I'm envisioning is that maybe we find this whole other space, molecules that actually weigh 2,000, much larger. They're sort of in between the antibodies and the small molecules. The beauty of this is that you can now access interactions with proteins that perhaps you couldn't readily get to before. There are a lot of undruggable proteins still, and we really need to be able to drug them. So I'm envisioning that we come up with this whole new box where the rules are different and we're able to, to make new medicines to treat uh, diseases that we didn't have the capabilities to, to get at so easily. And empirically designing new rules for new spaces. Exactly, exactly. Wendy, it's been lovely talking to you. I wish you all the best for your research and um, good luck. Oh, thanks, Jane. Wow, chemistry is no longer just alchemy, but truly an art. As always, thanks for joining me. In the next episode, we will be looking at how proteins, chemistry and biology all come together in understanding infectious disease. So stay tuned. In the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. And now for me, it's back to the lab.